Galatians. We're in Galatians. And the book of Galatians is about finding freedom in the true gospel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have seen in the first section of the book of Galatians where that gospel message comes from. The, the source of the gospel, Paul wants us to know, is God. And Paul says, look, here are some things that I'm going to tell you to help you know that this gospel message, is come, that this gospel message comes from God. I'm going to talk to you about the, 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 the conversion that I had that shows that this gospel comes from God. I'm going to talk with you about my calling. Uh, last week we talked about how the, there was confirmation on the part of the apostles, and that confirmation of the apostles helps his readers understand that this gospel message comes from God. That's the source of it. And then today we're going to see that there's a confrontation. We're going to see that this morning, the next few weeks. There's a, a confrontation. And this confrontation also shows that the gospel message comes from God because not only do the apostles confirm the gospel, but an apostle is confronted on the basis of the authority of the gospel. So not even, a, not even an apostle stands in authority over this gospel message. So let's, let's look at the text here together this morning. And remember, we've looked at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 14 this morning. And if you would stand with me, if you're able to, as we read God's word together. So he's talked about the unity among the apostles as they confirmed the gospel message, and now we come to verse 11. He says, but when, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask uh, by your grace you would open your word to us this morning as we, we think through these things and we do pray for the unity of, of your church and we just echo the things that, that Mike has prayed about our ability as a unified church to proclaim the, the gospel message. We echo what Pablo said in terms of having a desire uh, to reach our, our community, this, this place that you have sovereignly uh, put us in central Illinois. We, we pray that you'd give us the ability to reach this area with this gospel message of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Vital, vital to the health of our church is our ability to confront sin. Vital to the health of Bethany Community Church is our ability to, to see sin in one another's life and, and confront it and to, and to have others confront us in our sin as well. It's, it's vital to our spiritual health. It doesn't mean that it's pleasant. In fact, last, last night I had a dream, and in my dream someone was applying this message in my life and confronting me with, with sin, and it, it was not pleasant. And I, I woke up and my thought is, look, if, if many of you 
after we talk about these things this morning, say, you know what, I want to apply these truths of confronting sin. I'm going to begin with Daniel. Um, you know, praise God. Um, but maybe like coordinate so it's not all at once or something. But uh, confrontation can be unpleasant. It can be unpleasant to receive. It can be un- unpleasant to give. It's hard. In fact, I was reading about the workplace and they were talking about a test that was designed to show how different people receive negative feedback. And, and the researchers found that some people were super sensitive to negative feedback. And, and they, they described how these people who are sensitive emotionally and physically responded to negative feedback. They, they wrote this, these researchers, they, they said, it starts with a tightening in the chest or, or jaw. Some describe it, some describe this negative feedback as a, a punch in the stomach And this is followed by a well of emotions, sadness, anger, shame, resentment, and maybe a little guilt. Flashbacks of painful childhood memories of being chastised by an adult may filter briefly through the mind. It ends with one of the following scenarios. When a person receives negative feedback who's really sensitive to it, it it ends with one of the following scenarios, the researcher said. An angry outburst or a tirade of past achievements a deer-in-the-headlights look, or a resolve to come out better, smarter, stronger, or a desire to take sweet, subtle revenge. Um, that just made me laugh. I was just imagining a manager giving feedback and the worker saying, yes, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> sweet, subtle revenge. But I think that describes, I think that describes why some of us why some of us are, are hesitant to, to confront sin as we encounter it in the church. We recognize that people don't like being told negative things. And so it's, it's, it's hard to, to talk about negative things even with fellow believers. And yet, confronting sin, as, as I've said before, is, is vital to the spiritual health of our church. The ability to, to confront, receive confrontation is, is vital. In fact, here's kind of the main idea that I want us to, to think about as we go through this passage, it's this. All of us, all of us must be willing to correct and be corrected when we encounter attitudes and actions that contradict our profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, all of us who are part of Bethany Community Church or whatever other fellowship you're a part of, if you're visiting with us this morning, but all of us need to be willing to correct others and, and to be corrected when we encounter attitudes and actions that contradict our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so I I have professed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have this this action that contradicts that profession. I need to be willing to receive correction in that area. Or I'm in relationship with you, and I see that you have entertained thoughts or you're communicating these these thoughts and these actions that are, are contrary to your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to be willing to say something about that. It's vital to our spiritual health. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this story of confrontation. And I think it's actually a very encouraging story as we think about the need to confront sin. And we're going to ask four questions as we look at this interaction between these two apostles and the people in Antioch. We're going to ask these four questions to help us think through how to handle confrontation in a biblical, God-glorifying way. And here's the first question we're going to look at. And the first question is this. 
Who do we confront? Who do we confront? Paul begins this section saying, and when Cephas came to Antioch, when Cephas came to Antioch, what is, he, what is he talking about? When did this take place? Turn your Bibles, if you want to keep your fingers there in finger in the book of Galatian or digitally. I don't know how you do it digitally, but you can turn to Acts chapter 13. And I, I want us to see, we, we ended in Acts chapter 2 verse 10 last week. And Acts chapter 2, verse 10, kind of ends around 46 AD. And then some, some big things happen in between Galatians 2.10 and Galatians 2.11. Quite a few, several years have, have gone, uh, have passed in between those two verses. In Acts chapter, so Acts chapter 12 kind of is where Galatians 2.10 ends. And then something very important takes place in chapter 13. It says that there are in the church of Antioch some prophets and some teachers, and it says that the, the, the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting. This is Acts 13.2. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And so this is the first missionary journey. And this first missionary journey is the journey on which Paul and Barnabas meet the Galatians. They travel from east to west through Galatia, and they proclaim the gospel, and they meet the people of Galatia for the first time, and they kind of begin to establish these churches, much like has been shared with us already this morning. And then, what do they do? As they travel back from west to east, they appoint elders in this area. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14 describes Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And then you come to the end of chapter 14. And the end of chapter 14 is where we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. It says that they've they finished their missionary journey and they go back to the church at Antioch where they had been commended. This is uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 26, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So Acts chapter 13, here's the work I want them to do. Acts chapter 14, okay, you've fulfilled the work that God has called you to do. Then verse 27, they arrived and gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then it says, they remain, that's Paul and Barnabas, remain no little time with the disciples. So there at the end of chapter 14, you can go back to Galatians, there at the end of chapter 14, where is Paul? Paul is in Antioch for no little time. And it's while he's there in Antioch, at the end of Acts chapter 14, that Acts chapter 2 verse 11 takes place. It says, when Cephas had come, when, when Cephas came to Antioch. Now, who is Cephas? Cephas here is, is Peter. I said, well, who's, who's Peter? Peter's a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. He's one who's professed his faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And Peter is a, a leader in the church. And in fact, not only is Peter a, a leader in the church, he's, he's one of the apostolic leaders. He's one of the foundations upon whose, whose teaching God has, has used to, 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 to found the church. And not only is he one of the apostles, he's one of the 12. And not only is he one of the 12, he's like 
the apostle who first proclaimed the gospel. He's the first public professor of the gospel message. Acts chapter uh, 2, you encounter Peter proclaiming the gospel for the first time, and, and thousands of people respond to Peter proclaiming the gospel. And then all through uh, the book of Acts, the beginning especially, you see Peter engaged in this, this work of proclaiming the gospel. Peter is not only the first person who proclaims the gospel to the Jews, we see him proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Peter is, is, a, is a, a pillar of the church, right, as Paul has referred to him already in this chapter as. And yet, not even Peter, the first proclaimer publicly of the gospel, not even that guy is in authority above the gospel message. The person that Paul confronts with the gospel is is Peter himself. Now, what does this mean? It means, I believe, that that we cannot assume that anyone is going to be above the need for for gospel confrontation. In fact, as we look at Scripture and and we see examples of leaders throughout Scripture, we see that that clearly leaders are going to be those who who fall and leaders are going to be those who need the the confrontation of of other people in their lives. 1 Timothy 5 describes the, the need to rebuke elders. It says, rebuke them in the presence of all for the, that's those who persist in sin so the rest may stand in fear. In other words, no one, no one is above needing confrontation with gospel truth. So who are the people that we confront? And, and by the way, by confront, what do I mean? When I say confront, I mean making someone aware of sin in their life with the purpose of restoring them to relationship with God and, and unity with the gospel that they, they claim to profess. So when I confront a person, what am I doing? I'm, I'm making them aware through, through a conversation. I'm making them aware of, of sin, perceived sin in their life with the aim of restoring them to fellowship with, with God That's, and, and consistency with the gospel that they, they, they claim to profess. No one's above that. We need to directly confront all of those with, with whom we have, have relationship, right? So it's not unbelievers, this type of confrontation. And it's also, I, I believe, it's also not, it's also not people with, with whom we're not in a, a fellowship with. So, and the, the line here is a little bit blurry, but let's say that I hear about some sin that some Christian across the world has committed. I, I don't believe the responsibility lies with me to confront them with the the, the the sin in their life. I think this is talking here. I think the, the principle here is when I'm, when I'm in fellowship with another believer and I see and counter sin, we'll talk more about this as we go on, uh, those are the people with whom I have a, a relational obligation to address that sin. That means that there needs to be a certain attitude that we have as we exist in fellowship together. Thankfully, I think we're at the, I think we're at the end of, of the age of the, I don't know, permanent end. But, but there was, from like 2000 to 2015, it seemed like there was, it was kind of the age of the, the macho confrontational leader for the sake of confrontation. 
these are all these examples from, from 2000, 2015 of prominent evangelical leaders kind of talking about just in really tough terms about how they, they deal with other leaders. I remember one leader, very prominent uh, conservative evangelical guy was talking about how, you know, whenever he was, he was training other pastors, he says, look, you need to make sure you can do all you can to, to dilute the, the lay elders in your church so that, so that you can control 51% of the church. Or I remember another prominent evangelical, I, I, I think he was kidding, but he talked about how he was quoting a mixed martial arts instructor. He was talking about how this mixed martial arts instructor would break the nose of people who got out of the line. And he talked about maybe kind of alluding to breaking the nose of elders who got out of line. Uh, again, I think he was kidding, but he did say, you know, I'd love to go Old Testament on some leadership in this church, which, you know, um, maybe he meant like just talking theology with him, but I don't think so, right? Now, the point is this, whenever a, a person in a position of authority says foolishness like that, it, it creates an attitude, it creates a culture in a church where loving confrontation is, is not going to exist in a healthy way. Even strong believers can sin, and can sin in some very profound ways. Peter is in the wrong here in Galatians chapter 2. And some people come to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and they're very uncomfortable with it. What do I do if Peter's sinning? I, I don't find it discouraging at all. I find it very encouraging that even someone like Peter can make a very grave mistake in terms of applying the gospel publicly. Yes, the story, in fact, proves the truth that the source of Paul's gospel is God because even Peter can be confronted by its authority. You and I are under the authority of the gospel. And as a point of application, bottom line, who, who do we confront? We confront all those with whom we have a, a close fellowship and relationship with, all those that we're, we're in relationship with, especially in the context of the local church. But in terms of application, what, what, are, what are some thoughts of application here? You and I need to be people who recognize that we're under the authority of the gospel and welcome hard conversations in our lives. In fact, here's, here's kind of a, a thing I would encourage you to do uh, today or sometime in the next couple of days. Ask the people who you're in especially close relationships with, maybe your, your care group, maybe a spouse, friends in the youth group, just, just ask one of them, say, hey, um, how comfortable do you feel talking with me about sin in my life, things you see that, that aren't right? How comfortable do you feel? And, and then ask, then ask this, this follow-up question. Is there something, is there a sin in my life that you've been wanting to talk to me about that you haven't, that you, or that you've seen and you haven't felt comfortable talking with me about? And then be quiet. <laughs> don't defend it. Don't argue. Just, just listen. Be a person that by God's grace, others are able to talk with you about the ways in which you can grow in your gospel consistency. So that's who. It's, it's all of us that we're in fellowship with. Now, now, why do we confront? Listen to what Paul says next. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, then he says what? He says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, the two things that I want you to notice there in that, that last part of verse 11. First of all, notice the type of confrontation here. It says that Paul, Paul says, I, I opposed him. And that, that word means to set yourself 
apart from someone or set yourself against someone. So in other words, here's Peter, and Paul says, I, I opposed him. So I, I made it clear that, Peter, you're here, and I'm, I'm here on this issue. And he says, I did it to his face. And so it, was a, it wasn't like he said, hey, uh, other Antioch leaders, you know, Peter, Peter's over here on this issue and I'm over here and uh, we need to figure out how to minimize Peter's influence. And No, what, did, what does Paul do? To Peter's face, in other words, publicly, not behind his back, not through gossip, not through maligning. He says, Peter, look, you're here and, and I'm here. I'm, I'm opposing you. I'm, I'm, I'm in a different spot than you are on this issue. That's the first thing we, we see in this last part of verse 11. But notice the other thing. Notice, he, notice what he says about why he does this. He says, because he stood condemned. Now, now what does that mean? Peter is, is here. This is where, so this is, where, this is where Paul is. And Paul says, I'm over, I'm over here on this issue. You're standing here and you're standing condemned. Now, who is Peter condemned by. It's not by Paul. Peter's not condemned by the other Antioch leaders. He's not condemned by Barnabas. Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. Peter stands condemned here by, by God. The place in which Peter has, has put himself is a place that God has said is, is not the right place to be. His, his condemnation in that that word condemnation means that, that God has passed judgment on, on this issue. That action is, is condemned by God. Peter has placed himself in a, in a, in a situation, in a place where God has already said, look, I'm, I'm against this. Now, what does this mean? It means that, that we confront because God has already condemned an action. What we are doing when we are confronting is we're not saying, you know what, you've offended me and I'm upset about this and I don't like this. That, that's, not what, that's not what confronting is. As we confront other people, we're saying, look, we're, we're letting you know what God has already determined. We are simply in agreement with what God has proclaimed. In other words, Paul doesn't come and say, you know what, Peter? My apostleship trumps your apostleship. You know, you're this type of apostle, but I'm, a, I'm like a super duper apostle. Later, I'm going to have more books than you. So, that, That's not the basis of Paul's confrontation of, of Peter. He says, look, you know what, Peter? You and I are both underneath a higher authority. It's God's authority. The source of this gospel message is God himself. And if anyone is preaching or acting in a way that's contrary to that, they're condemned not by Paul, not by Barnabas, not by Peter, but by, by God himself. We confront because we're recognizing what God has already declared. John Brown is a, an Irishman who traveled the United States for a year and, and wrote a, a blog about it. And he, um, he wrote down 17 things that kind of surprised him about the United States. And, and it's kind of an interesting list. He, he has some positive things to say about the United States too, but he kind of was talking about the things that, that surprised him or kind of annoyed him. So for example, it, he was surprised that everything is awesome. You know, everything, you, everyone, everything that everyone talks about, they always use the word awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome. Um, it kind of, 
confused him. It says, he said, you know, a smile seems to mean nothing. You know, the person is walking up to you and smiling, and you're like, are we, are we being nice to me or are you just saying hi? It was very confusing to him. Tipping bothered him. Uh, fake prices. You never actually knew what you were going to pay for something. But this was the, this was the thing that he said that kind of struck me as interesting, this, this observation. This is John Brown. He says, sometimes I wonder if political correctness is in your constitution. I found out very quickly in my first visit that I had to bite my tongue pretty much all the time and more annoyingly that nobody was ever straight with me. It seems that speaking your mind to individuals is a major taboo. Nobody will ever tell you that you could look like you, you stand to, to lose a few pounds. And there's way too much uh, lack of clarity, to, and, and you always just avoid hard truths. He says, a lot of Americans I met feel very lonely, and I feel this is a major reason. Being insulting for the sake of being insulting is needless aggression, but constructive criticism is what friends are for. He talks about there's just one time in the entire last three months of his, of his trip that he says that someone was, was straight with him about how he could improve a presentation that he gave. And he said uh, it was helpful, really useful advice, but it caught me off guard because I was used to months of everything is awesome. <laughs> Why do we confront? Why do we confront? It can be hard for us. We don't confront because we, we don't, when we wanna, we're personally offended. We want our glory to be exalted. We want someone to grovel. Why do we confront? We confront because a person stands in a place where God has said, what you are doing and thinking, the way you're acting is, is wrong. And then we, we tell that person that, not on the basis of our authority, but on the basis of God's authority. We tell them that because we love God's glory. We desire God to be glorified above all else. And here's a, a brother or sister in Christ who, who says that they love God and yet is acting this way that God has said is, is not right. And because we love God and his glory, we're going to tell them that, hey, your, your actions here are diminishing the glory of the God you say you love. We confront because we love God's glory. We also confront because we love that brother or sister in Christ. We don't want to stand in a place that God has condemned, and we don't want those that we love to stand in a place that God doesn't want them. And we also condemn, and, and this, is, this is very important, and it's, it's what Paul is doing here. We also confront because we love the church. And, and we recognize that if we fail to confront sin, there's every danger that other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are going to look at, at this person in, the, in this place that they're standing and say, okay, I guess that's a right thought to have. I guess that's the right action to have. And I, I'm going to, to act that way as well. And so we confront because we love God's glory. We confront because we love the person in sin. We confront because we love the church. Peter is a good man. He's an apostle. Paul has just confirmed that God had done wonderful things through Peter, that, that God had ordained him as, as an apostle. In fact, he says that, he says that the, the gospel that he has is just like Peter had been entrusted with the gospel that, that he has. So the, the apostolic ministry that Peter had is the apostolic ministry that I have. So if, if he thinks his ministry is good, he also thinks Peter's ministry is good. And yet, and yet what does Paul say? Look, I, I need to confront this because he stood condemned. Because he's in a place that's dangerous for the glory of God, 
being exalted. He's in a place that's dangerous for him to be spiritually. And he's in a place that's dangerous for the church to see him in. Well, that brings up a third question then. What do we confront? Okay. So I, I know I need to confront those that I'm in a relationship with. I need to confront because I love the glory of God and I, and I don't want a person to stand condemned and, and diminish God's glory in their life. I don't want them to be in a place where they're in disobedience and I don't want others to fall in that. So I, I know that's, that's why, but, but what? Because as, as you think about us as human beings, you recognize, man, they're if I just focused on one person and tried to correct all that, this could be a, a full-time gig. What, what do I confront? Listen to what Paul says about his interaction with Peter. Verse 12. He says, For before certain men came from James, he, that's, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, so, so what's taking place here? What's taking place is that before these men from James come that Paul alludes to in verse 12, Peter comes to Antioch. Okay, so this is again, this is at the end of Acts chapter 14. Peter comes to Antioch and he comes and he's perhaps he's come to kind of observe the work of God there in the church of Antioch and, and he comes and he engages in fellowship with the believers from Antioch. So they sit down and they, they eat together. Peter is indicating not just kindness, not just, hey, we're in a relationship, but he's indicating fellowship. In fact, Acts chapter 10, this is, this is before the events here in Acts, uh, in Galatians 2. But in Acts chapter 10, remember Peter's vision. This is before he goes to Cornelius. He has this vision and he sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And there's all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and there, there came a voice to him rise Peter kill and eat and Peter says no Lord I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean and the voice comes again a second time what God has made clean do not call common okay so that's that's the message of this vision what what God has called clean don't call common don't call unclean and then he goes to Cornelius this Gentile's house and they come to him they tell him the situation he goes to Cornelius's home and he begins to share the gospel with them, not very boldly at first. He's kind of hesitant. They kind of keep on asking him some questions, and so he responds with the gospel message. And then it says this in verse 44. This is Acts 10, verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, these things about Jesus and about Jesus' work on the cross, And the fact that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While he's saying that, the Holy Spirit falls on all those who hear the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so these Jewish Christians see the Gentiles respond to the gospel message, believe in Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and their minds are blown. They don't have a category for a person to be in relationship with God who's not Jewish. But Peter, 
rightly recognizes what's happened, and he says, look, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And how did we receive the Holy Spirit? Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so they're baptized. Then you come into Acts 11 and the church hears about what's happened and he's, he's criticized from the circumcision party. You went and you ate with uncircumcised pe- people and then Peter says, look, here's what happened and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us and, um, and who was I to stand in God's way? And it says when the, the, the people heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, so that's the context. Peter comes to Antioch he sees these Gentile believers and, and he eats with them. And by eating with them, he's not just saying, let's, let's, I'm hungry, let's have some dinner together. He's saying, there's, there's fullness of fellowship here. We are, we're one in Christ. We can participate in the Lord's Supper together. There's, there's no distinction between me and you. We have both received forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's, that's what he's communicating. But then what happens? Certain men come from James. Now, who are these? I'm not sure. Apparently, James, in his position of leadership in the church in Jerusalem, had sent some people to Antioch and said, hey, find out what's going on. And, and in fairness to these people who came from James, and in fairness, I, I don't know exactly what James' thoughts were. Perhaps these guys went above what James had instructed them with. But remember, if, if I'm right that this is taking place at the end of Acts 14, that means Acts 15 hasn't happened yet. And that means in Acts 15 where all this, this about Gentiles and Christians and how Gentiles and Jews are both saved through faith in Jesus Christ, that hasn't happened yet. And it's a time of confusion for some in the church. And so as these men come from James... They're asking some questions. They're trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's going on here? What is this fellowship that's taking place? Don't, and perhaps some of them are saying this, look, don't we need to encourage these people who've responded to the gospel? Don't we need to, don't we need to be encouraging them to continue in their journey to become Jewish and become fully part of God's, God's covenant plan from the beginning? Don't we need to have them united with Abraham through becoming circumcised? And Peter, it says, Peter responds by drawing back and separating himself. In other words, these people come from James and it says that Peter draws back and he he separates himself. Now, why did he do that? It says that he he feared the circumcision party. And and, and what what kind of fear? I'm, I'm not sure. Perhaps... Peter's thinking, okay, this is, this is a controversial issue, and if it gets back to Jerusalem that I'm eating with the, the Gentiles, it is just going to be this, this major controversy in the church, and the Jewish Christians are going to be persecuted even worse than, than what I'm hearing about now. It's, it's just a, a bad deal for protection and unity. I'm just going to, I just don't want to deal with it. I'm going to pull back. But 
But the problem is his actions are inconsistent with what he claims he believes about the gospel. You see, I don't think Peter's theology has changed. I don't think that Peter now thinks that a person has to become Jewish in order to become a Christian, in order to be justified before God. I I believe that his theology has stayed the same, and yet he has made a, a terrible strategic decision here. He has succumbed to pressure, and by his actions, he is now undermining the message of the gospel. What's the message of the gospel? Paul's about to tell it to Peter. We're going to look at it over the next two weeks. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That's, that's the gospel. And Peter, by stepping back and saying, okay, there's not fullness of fellowship. There's not fullness of fellowship with these Gentile Christians. What he is doing is he's undermining that gospel message and saying, okay, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, but you also need to become Jewish until you can have fullness of fellowship and right relationship with God and one another. That is a message that undermines the very truth of the gospel, and it's a big deal, and Paul is going to come down hard on this because it affects the gospel. Now, what else happens because of Peter's sinful response here? His sin, however well-meaning, has far-reaching consequences. The other Jews act like a bunch of hypocrites, it says the rest of the Jews uh, were carried along. It says that the, um, the Jews also acted hypocritically, and even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. It's a big deal. His sin has far-reaching consequences to this, this church. It needs to be addressed. So what do we confront all that to say, what, what should we confront? What sins do we directly address with those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, who would profess that they, they've believed the gospel? I think it's hard to draw clear lines in this, but, but here's kind of the general rule of thumb that, that I think we see in Scripture. With our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to directly confront behavior that contradicts a person's profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. With one another, we need to directly confront behavior that contradicts a person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So a person says, I've, I believe the gospel, and then we look at Scripture and says, okay, these are the things that are going to be true of a person who's, who's believed the gospel. This is what it's going to look like in terms of how they respond to God in obedience and submission to his word, submission to Christ's lordship. When we encounter a person who's living in, in blatant contradiction of God's authority and, and lo- what it looks like to love God, we address that. First John, as we've talked about before, as we went through the, the epistle of First John, it talks about, look, this is what... This is what it looks like to love one another. And a person loves God and has affirmed the gospel. This is what it's going to look like in your relationships with one another. And we encounter a person who is not responding in love with their relationships with others and is, is violating that relational unity. What do we do? We, we, that has to be confronted because it's, it's contradicting a person's profession of faith in, the God, uh, faith in Jesus Christ, their, the message of the gospel. Now, I think there are some things that we don't need to confront 
in this way particularly. I think we don't need to confront honest mistakes. I don't think we need to confront issues related to preference. We don't need to confront a person if they take a different position than we do on a debatable issue. I think it also means that, you know, there, there's going to be times where there's going to be misunderstanding and misinterpretations, and you're going to talk to a person, and you're going to say, look, um, you know, I, I felt like you, you were wrong when you, you yelled at me here, and the person's going, I, yelled? I didn't yell at you. And you say, well, no, yeah, you did. No, I, I don't think I, I did that. And at some, at some point, sometimes when there's, there's disagreements on an issue, you just simply have to say, look, I don't know how we're going to get beyond this because this person, I, I believe, honestly doesn't think they did what I think that they did. And so what are we going to do? I'm going to say, well, I'm going to confront you until you conform to the truth of the gospel and, you know, bring it on. Or I'm going to say, you know what? First Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter, let me read that. First um, Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, fervently, since love covers a multitude of sins. So sometimes in my relationship with other believers, I'm saying, you know what? I don't think that person knew what they were saying there. I think they made a mistake. I think this is an honest difference of interpretation. Love is just going to cover a multitude of the relational issues we have with one another. But I'm not going to avoid confronting a person because I'm afraid of confrontation, but I'm going to try to confront on those areas that are central to a person's walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and affirmation of the gospel. Those are the things that I'm going to focus on. So that doesn't mean I'm not going to deal with the other things or maybe, you know, hopefully in a relationship there's an extended amount of time to deal with other issues, but I'm going to focus on those things that are, that are most central to their clear, uh, clear consistency with the gospel message. Well, that brings us to the last question. How do we confront? How do we confront? And, and look at what Peter does here, or, or Paul does with Peter here. We're, we're going to continue to look at this in the coming weeks. But look at, look at the progression here. Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's a progression here. Paul makes an observation. He sees something. It's not some rumor. He sees what Peter is doing, and he sees that his conduct is not in step with the gospel. And so he addresses it. Now, some have been uncomfortable with how Paul addresses it here. But, but he does it in front of everyone, which is necessary because this sin was done by a leader and was done in public. And so Paul addresses it publicly. It's, it's different when it's a relational sin. Here it's a, a confrontation dealing with a, a public sin. And Paul gives a, a practical application of theology. Again, we're going to look at this more in the next two weeks. But he says, look, Peter, your conduct is, is hypocritical. You, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. And yet you want the Gentiles to live like Jews. And then he's going to talk about, look, this, this is about the gospel and about how both Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're justified by faith alone. So what are the principles here? Here's a couple of principles. And we'll, we'll talk more about principles of confrontation and coming alongside one another when we get to chapter 6. But here's just a couple of, of principles to help get us thinking about this. One, we, we deal with behavior of which we have direct knowledge. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just confronting someone because I, I have a suspicion, you know. I have a suspicion that you're not all that you say that you are, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront you. And if I'm wrong, eh, sorry. 
that are safe than sorry, right? You know, I'm, I'm confronting on, a, on an issue that I have direct knowledge. Maybe, I've, I've ta- maybe, maybe someone's communicated, look, this is an issue that uh, I'm aware of, and so I, I, I try to find out information. But there's, there's, it's not just innuendo. It's not just a suspicion. I'm, I'm dealing with behavior of which I have direct knowledge. And that means, by the way, if you're a person who has direct knowledge of sin in someone's life, it starts with you. It's not, hey, let me take it to someone else and let them deal with it. It starts with that relationship. As another principle here, you speak related to this. You speak directly to those who have sinned, and you resist the temptation to grumble or gossip or malign one another. In fact, let me read just a, a couple of passages. And as I read these passages, I suspect that it could bring an instant need for repentance on in, in our hearts Proverbs 18.8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down in the inner parts of the body. What's that? The words of a whisperer, a gossip. When they tell us something bad about someone else, it's, it's like delicious morsels. We love in our flesh to hear those things. But they're to have no, no place in the heart of the believer. Proverbs 17.4, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. If, if you're a person who listens to, to gossip, you're an evildoer. Proverbs 20.19, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not even associate with a simple babbler. You don't want to be associated with, with gossip. James 4.11, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so as believers, we don't speak evil about one another. We, we talk to people directly. James 5.9, don't grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Gossip maligning, uh, malicious talk, mischievous tongue, that's not to have a place in the community of faith. Third principle, we speak directly. We speak directly in a way that's appropriate to the context. So if it's a relational issue, maybe I speak directly to you and we deal it with Matthew 18, but maybe it's a situation with a leader who's been publicly teaching false doctrines about some crucial things, that's, that's addressed publicly. You speak directly you, to the person. You speak in a way that's appropriate to the context. Another principle, fourth principle here, you, you deal with the sin itself and avoid personal attacks and you avoid foolish controversies. Second Timothy, Paul would say, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then finally, Final, final principle here is you pursue peace. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. How does this end? How does this end? We come to the book of Acts again, and, and I believe Acts 15 takes place after Galatians 2, after this, this discussion that Peter and Paul have. And in Acts 15, this, this issue of what to do with the Gentiles, it comes to, to the forefront and the, the church is, is arguing and there's this, this huge discussion. And then Peter stands up and listen to what Peter says. Peter says, look, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's Peter doing? He's repeating what Paul has said to him. And then he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. What beautiful fruit of confrontation. Paul recognizes hypocrisy and inconsistency in Peter's life. He, he confronts it. And what does Peter do? By the grace of God, I believe, in Acts 15, he gives a vigorous defense for the true gospel because he sees the truth of what Paul is saying and puts himself underneath the authority of God's word and the gospel. That's our responsibility. We want to be a church that by God's grace confronts one another and receives confrontation well, biblically, gently, so that we can be those who are living consistently with the gospel we profess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be willing to, to correct and be corrected as we encounter those things in our life that, that contradict that profession of faith in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to be gentle with one another, to help us to be clear with one another, and to help us to glorify your great name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.